Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Film doesn't change the world. People change the world. But film can be a powerful tool in organizing people, engaging people, and in getting people to feel something because you've told them a story that moves them emotionally. And now they have to come to terms with those feelings. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 44. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. As many of you are already probably aware of, there was no show last week due to a work trip to Amsterdam. It was a whirlwind of a trip. In fact, I, I was out on a Sunday evening and, and back to the States early evening on, on Wednesday. Before that, I, I traveled back to, to Portland, Oregon to shoot two jobs. So yeah, pretty packed few weeks there. And admittedly, I did get a little behind on TDL. And so I decided it might be better to take the two days that I did have between trips and spend that time with family instead of rushing to you know put something together for an episode. I made the right decision, but it, it definitely felt strange. It still feels strange that, you know, last Friday went by where, where I didn't publish a new show. It was the first time since I began doing the show back in June of 2016, you know, that I'd even ever, you know, that I'd taken a week off. My time shooting in Portland and, and then this job in Amsterdam, it gave me a little time to reflect on, well, reflect on these types of jobs, travel jobs, which, by the way, for the most part, huge fan of. For me, it's it's a time where I can just, you know, put my head down and, and focus on nothing but the job, doing what I love and, and, and being away from home, doing all of this without the distractions of... Well, the distractions that come come along with being home, especially if you have a family. Anyhow, travel jobs like, like these, they're a great time for focus and reflection. And they're also a great time for honing your skills as a filmmaker, especially if you're doing a job where you are, you know, perhaps one of the only people doing the job. Or if you're doing a documentary project and, and you're doing what I like to refer to as, as one man banding it. That is to say, the project's a one man crew. You are the crew. And I have a bunch of experience doing this sort of thing. Sometimes regrettably, but but most of the time I, I've loved doing this kind of a job or, or shooting on a doc project in this fashion. But it's not easy. And if you're not smart about the choices you make before and during your production, you risk making something that looks like it was compromised by lack of funds or, or manpower or or worse, expertise. But it definitely doesn't have to be this way. In fact, I bet that we've all seen more video than we realize that was fully created by one individual. There are, in fact, ways that we can all be doing the one-man band thing quite well, to the point where no one would ever know that we were the shooter and the sound person and the director, the editor, the producer, and, and whatever else. And when we come back from a short break, I'm going to give you some real applicable tips on how to best achieve results doing doc work completely on your own. 
Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy today, and we'll see you there. As documentary filmmakers, we all froth at the mouth at the prospect of doing our projects with some kind of real budget and crew. I mean, by nature, I think as, as doc filmmakers, we're often working shorthanded with little resources, or I should say little to no resources. And that the idea of having an actual crew and, and maybe some ample funding, it's something that we're always dreaming about or at least striving to achieve. But what if instead of focusing on what we didn't have, we instead put our thoughts and energies into best using what it is that we do have? What if we made the absolute most of every single piece of gear, every resource at our disposal, and instead of seeing a particular challenge or pitfall as a potential game ender, the creative solution that we come up with then ends up being a game changer for our film. I remember uh, years ago reading an article about the filmmaker Steven Soderbergh. It was in some filmmaking magazine. It was probably after another one of his Hollywood heist films, Ocean's 66 or something. I don't know at that point. I sound like I'm disparaging his work there, but I should say I actually greatly admire Soderbergh as a filmmaker. On one hand, he creates some of the more successful Hollywood films, such as the, you know, the Ocean's whatever franchise or, or Traffic or, or Aaron Brockovich. And then on the other hand, he'll go off and self-fund his own experiments and creativity with films like uh, like Bubble or Schizopolis or, or Solaris. And for the record, I am a massive fan of his adaptation of Solaris. The original film adaptation by, by Tarkovsky, it's still probably one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time. But Soderbergh's, it also gives me chills. They're totally different approaches to the novel. And for me, they both are mesmerizing pieces of work. I could do a whole show about Solaris. I know it's not a doc subject, but but can we do that? Pretty please? Okay, maybe I'll just have to start a podcast that's devoted to Solaris or, or fans of Solaris. Or maybe I'll figure out some kind of documentary. Anyhow, Soderbergh. I, I was reading this article, and, and he spends a, a, a chunk talking about how he misses the old days of when he didn't always have the resources you know, to shoot a scene a certain way or, or cast a particular actor or get you know, the crane shot that, that he's hoping for. 
nowadays, you know, he had felt that, that he constantly purposefully had to challenge himself as a filmmaker because too often, whenever he encountered any sort of issue on set or or potentially on an upcoming shoot day, you know, no sooner had he described the issue than, than producers were already working on fixing the problem. And by fixing it, I do mean finding the money to simply buy whatever they needed to, you know, to achieve Soderbergh's vision. Soderbergh was, he, he was maintaining that once you'd achieved a certain degree of success within the film industry, there was really no turning back. You know, resources and funding were now simply there for you. You were, in essence, kind of stripped to really come up with a creative solution to a problem. And as we, we all know, sometimes the lovely accidents, right? The lovely accidents are the creative solutions that really make a film stand out. Um, those are what often make films completely fresh and exhilarating. Now, sure, we'd all love to have this kind of a problem, and I'm sure that Soderbergh was was probably romanticizing, right? Romanticizing the starving the starving artist a little bit, but but I never forgot reading that, and and I think there's an important point in there, which is which is to say that that, that we should all maybe embrace a little bit more, right? Embrace what not having an infinite amount of resources actually does allow for us, which is you know, true art, maybe true artistic creativity and, and ingenuity or, or, or the freedom of not being beholden to the influences of funding sources. It's obviously not really a problem for most of us doc filmmakers, but nonetheless, I think it's something worthy of keeping in mind. And certainly for the purposes of what we're talking about here, how to best be a one-person crew for your, for your project or, or your gig or your job. I'm saying one person here. I'm sure I said one man earlier. Please con- consider these one and the same. You know, I'm using them interchangeably, and, and I'm using them devoid of devoid of gender. I hope it's obvious that I mean men and women. We're, we're all adults here, right? I, I know you probably get that, and I can't believe I had to say that, but but there it is. I promise not to say it again. Okay, so let's take a look at the equipment needs of the one-person crew. You know you're going to need a camera. You're going to need to record sound. Um, you might need some kind of light source, but often we're, we're trying to take advantage of, of daylight as much as we can or, or other sources in, in, in interiors. Um, and, and you'll most likely need some way to offload and store footage. Those are probably the most basic needs that you'll have other than food and water. And let's assume for this segment that there will be two kinds of you out there operating as one-person crews. There will be those of you working in more controlled environments, right, uh, more ideal settings, and, and then there will be some of you working in less than ideal environments, say out in the mountains or, or on an island somewhere. In both cases, you'll need a proper way to be carrying your gear. And that's a big thing, right? The footprint on the setting you, you're operating in, as well as you know, the overall maneuverability in which you're working. If you're shooting out in developing world terrain or, or, or a conflict zone or, or say the mountains of Nepal, which, which I obviously did with, with Journey to Kathmandu, you'll need to travel light and efficiently. Think minimalist here, people, not only with the amount of gear, but with where and how you'll be packing your gear. Thankfully, there, there are so many options available now, especially with the plethora of available video gear that's out there nowadays. You know, There's a company out of, out of Israel called Kata, and they make Kata bags. Um, I've used them with great success in the past. Their bags were, were the first ones that, that just happened to catch my eye because not only were they, they rugged but lightweight, but, but they also had a lot of removable storage compartments. And, and that's the case with, with many, many travel bags. I do understand that now. Um, and, and that's probably something you'll want. Uh, not all cameras and lenses are created the same, right? Many different shapes and sizes and weights 
Um, so removable or flexible compartments are really attractive here. Some of the best ones that I've seen are, are compartments that are that are simply removed and reattached by Velcro, basically. Um, I, I was able to keep my camera, a couple of lenses, batteries, a shotgun mic and lavaliers, and tapes. Yes, I, I did say tapes since when I shot, you know, J2K, I was using mini HD tapes. All um, I was able to keep them all in my Kata bag. The only thing I didn't really have in my Kata bag was my set of sticks, which one of my porters carried around attached alongside the Kata bag. If you're doing some dock work and perhaps shooting a smaller job in a more controlled environment, say um, an office building or, or, or someone's house, you will have the luxury of traveling with items that you can you know, simply set aside. And, and this means you won't have to stuff everything that you're working with into a bag. You'll probably be able to go around with, with a few different bags, some stands, um, extension cords, etc., etc., you obviously won't be able to efficiently haul all, the, haul all of these around at one time. So if you're making, for instance, a number of moves during the day, I'd highly recommend getting yourself maybe some kind of camera cart. Um, there are a number of different options, again, that are out there. But it's it's really not necessary to break the, break the bank here. That would be easy to do. Mag liners, which, which are great collapsible camera carts and do tend to be industry standards, they can be pretty expensive. They, they start at $300 and go quickly up from there, you know, depending on added options. I actually uh, came across a, a really great DIY option by, by a Steadicam operator by the name of uh, Lee Clements. He, uh, he basically goes through how to use Amazon and or Home Depot to build a great, easy-to-use, collapsible, and sturdy version that, that nicely fits in the boot of your car. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll put the link to that article up in the show notes for this episode. Uh, anyhow, a camera cart will, will save, it'll save you loads of time, trips to the car, and, and, and maybe some muscle aches in the morning, though that's, of course, there's something to be said about muscle aches, right? That's, that's actually a good feeling the next morning. One of the elements to filmmaking that can surprisingly easily easily be overlooked is the audio element, um, and, and I've certainly talked about this and preached this on, on the show here a number of times. It's easy to become so focused, and you'll pardon that pun, on the camera work that the risk of, of audio being compromised, it, it's, it's pretty understandable. Um, there is a reason that camera operators shoot the visuals and sound people record the audio. Um, sometimes on you know those minuscule budgets, the shooter is asked to monitor the audio, and that does not generally make a shooter very happy. It's it's a big responsibility, and it is easy to mess up. You'd be surprised, right? It's easy to mess up. Again, I've said before here on the program that the sound people are some of the most underappreciated people in the industry. It only takes one time to wish you'd had a sound person on your crew. But for the one-person crew, we are obviously the sound person. So, so let's stick with stick with that now, and and how we can best achieve good audio while we're you know also shooting and directing and conducting interviews and and and, and yeah, doing sound. First and foremost, always, always, always bring your headset or you know a pair of earbuds. Earbuds make more sense, especially if you're talking with your subject. You 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 can have, you know, one ear monitoring audio and the other listening to to the person you're talking with. Um however you do it, you, you have to be monitoring your audio at all times. Don't simply rely. The worst thing you can do is simply rely on your audio meters. Believe me, I, I've made that needless mistake more times I than I'd care to admit. Um and you'll be kicking yourself when you get home, safe in the knowledge that you that you you know properly monitored your audio meters, and then you realize that there's this low frequency hum or, or intermittent interference with with the wireless lav, you know that no amount of reading meters off of the camera would would have ever caught. Um, 
If all else fails, trust what you can hear. I would rather my on-camera meters malfunction than I would the capacity to monitor the output Monitor the output with a, with a pair of headphones. I will trust what I can hear way more than I can see any day. Most cameras enable you to record two tracks of audio, and, and, and generally, you'll use one track for a live mic and then the other for the shotgun mic. And, and this is great to always have two options for your audio. However, if you're ever in an instance where it only makes sense to use one audio source, you know, either the lav or the shotgun, if your camera allows for it, split those signals to tracks so that you can you can adjust levels separately. Um, and in this case, make sure to do that second track. Make sure that the second track, I should say, is always lower in modulation than the first. That way, you know, if you're ever modulating, over-modulating uh, on the first track, you know that you always have a, have a backup with that second track of audio, which you had recorded, you know, hopefully at a lower level. One more quick note that I'll add about audio before moving on from that has to do with, uh, has to do with lavaliers or, or lapel mics, as, as they're also known. I realize the temptation is to always go wireless. You know, they're quick to set up. They're easy to maneuver around with, you know, certainly if you're following someone around with a camera. But if you're ever in a sit-down interview setting, if you are able to, using a wired lavalier might be a better way to go. There's nothing worse than having to get up in the middle of an interview to attend to audio issues. And as I'm sure you've encountered yourself, some kind of interference with a wireless signal, it is not an uncommon problem, unfortunately. Um, if you go wired straight to the camera, you will not have to worry about any kind of interference. Um, if I'm doing the one-man band thing, I will always try and use my wired lav if I can. One of the frustrating parts when shooting something solo is that you only have one camera angle to choose from. Um, I should say you often only have one camera angle to choose from. This has obvious limiting factors later on in post-production in the editing room. Now, now one camera is how the majority of us doc filmmakers shoot anyhow, right? But there is in fact a way to shoot, say, an interview in a way that will allow for you to have two focal lengths to choose from when you're editing. And that's without having to set up another camera. One of the ways that I like to shoot, in particular interviews, when I'm going solo on a shoot, is to shoot in 4K. By shooting 4K and, and plopping this footage into a 1080 timeline in your edit, or more accurately, a, a 1920 by 1080 timeline, you it gives you all kinds of room in which to make um, you know pans and zooms within your image without losing any kind of resolution. Remember, shooting 4K is 3840 by 2160. So when you put that into a 1920 by 1080 timeline, you're giving yourself ample room to make any necessary adjustments, like, say, zooming into a tighter shot. If done properly, it will appear as if you've actually had a second camera, only with a longer, you know, say, focal length. Now, I'm most likely telling you something you already know. Totally get that. I realize this. But what you may not have realized is that you can do this even if you don't have a camera equipped with 4K functionality. See, most anything you shoot for the web is going to be presented at 1280 by 720. This is still HD video, it's just not full res HD video, which again is the 1920 by 1080. So, so if you're doing a project or a job where the final output is absolutely intended for a web audience, that means you can output your final movie to that 1280 by 720. 
Well, guess what happens when you shoot full res HD in 1920 by 1080 and drop this into a 720 timeline? Yep, the same thing as I mentioned earlier. You will now have enough room to make zooms and tilts you know, without losing resolution and give yourself a second camera angle. Again, it's the same principle as I talked about earlier with the 4K and 1920 example. I think that it's it's just used less often because people tend to forget that 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 if your final output is for web, it's generally not necessary to be editing in a full res in 1920 by 1080 timeline. Honestly, I do this for 99% of anything that I shoot for the web. Now, of course, if you're doing a documentary film project, I would not recommend doing this. You want as much resolution as possible at all times. You might get away with shooting 4K and editing in a 1080 timeline, but, but don't shoot something that is your documentary film in 1080 with the, attent, uh, with the intent of editing in a 720 timeline. That's a terrible idea. Uh, any shooter will tell you that. Any DP will tell you that. Um, but, but if you're shooting for the web, by all means, I don't see any reason not to take advantage of the added resolution. Something else that might seem a little obvious, but I'm going to expound upon it regardless, is the idea of becoming very familiar with all of your gear. Not just your camera, not just your sound, or your, or your offloading footage work, workflow, but all of your gear and all of your workflow. Because as the one-person crew, the last thing you ever want on a shoot is any sort of issue or downtime. You need all of your gear to be working seamlessly. And more than that, you need to be working seamlessly with your gear. When you're on the move and you're shooting, there, there isn't time to be looking at your camera to find the aperture dial or, or the white balance toggle or, or the audio meters adjustment. When you have a thought to make some sort of an adjustment, you want to be able to instinctively go to the place you know, where you make that adjustment without having to think about it or, or certainly look at it. Um, if I had to look down at my camera buttons while I was walking and shooting in temples in Cambodia or, or mountains in Nepal, it, it would have been very disruptive to the workflow. And that's exactly what you don't want. Um, the more you can stay in the flow when you're shooting, obviously, the better. And the same goes for when you're shooting interviews. You don't want to have to look down at your camera when you're trying to conduct a conversation with an interviewee. Um, that then risks becoming disruptive to the interview process as well. And, and actually, along those lines, when conducting an interview as the one-person crew, it's best to have your topics of your interview sort of embedded in your brain so that, that you're not looking down and, and, and fumbling at, at a sheet of questions. Remember, a one-person crew still only has two hands. You know, we may, we may be wearing 10 different hats, but we still only have our, our two hands. So if you're holding a sheet of questions, well, that probably takes away the ability to easily make an audio or camera adjustment. You know, you'll have to stop the interview, place the sheet of paper down on the floor, then make your technical adjustment, pick the sheet of paper back up, and then begin the interview again. Awkward. Uh, try and have as much of your topics of conversation in your head as possible. Um, if you're in a pinch, you can always tape an index card with some short, you know, topic headings to your camera uh, or above your above your monitor. This will at least keep your hands free. I can easily go on and on about best practices for shooting with the one-person crew approach. I mean, I could probably do multiple episodes about this, but I do need to wrap up this segment. But before I do that, I want to say one more thing, and it's about power. 
Even if you've already scouted a location and you're in some super cush setting, don't ever assume that you'll have AC power. You never know when there could be a power outage, for instance. So always be prepared to go to battery power. And certainly if you're in settings like I like I often am when, when shooting in developing countries, battery power is, is probably the only power. So you've got to be super smart about the number of bats that you bring with you, as well as the way in which you use that battery power throughout the day. When I was in the mountains in Nepal, right up by the border with Tibet in uh, in a place called Rashua, there was very little power. It was intermittent at best, and it was uh, hydropower from, from, from a dam upstream. I was anticipating these kinds of scenarios, so I made sure to bring loads of batteries with me, and I made sure that all of them were charged before, certainly um, before leaving Kathmandu to venture out into the mountains. Um, and then once there, I quickly figure out, figured out what hours the town might have to, might have power, and then I'd be sure to plug a, a double charger into an outlet. Um, I had brought a double charger with with me because, in essence, it enabled me to not have to change batteries out as often, you know, as I would have if I'd only had a single charger. As an aside, I'll tell you that the guest house when I was where I was staying up in Rashua. Eventually, a few days into filming, they were completely clued into what I was doing. So, so often I could even leave my charger unattended, and the, and the proprietor's wife would sometimes she'd change out freshly charged batteries with the used ones, you know, that I had laying beside the charger. Now, picture a seventy-year-old woman who doesn't speak a lick of English. She's dressed in traditional garb. Um, she doesn't know anything about cameras, and she's swapping out batteries for you know some some thirty-something dude who doesn't speak a lick of Tibetan or Nepalese, maybe knows a little bit about cameras. Um, just hold that image in your mind for a second. It, it's a great image, right? That, my friends, that is half the reason I shoot in those kinds of settings. Look. It's never easy being a one-person crew, but there are things that you can be doing to best maximize the effectiveness and efficiency of your shoot. I find the one-person crew thing, when done right, it can be an exciting and extremely gratifying practice. There are just a few things that you wanna be aware of is all, but when done correctly, this can end up being some of the work that you are the most proud of. And now it's time for the Doc Lifer community question of the week. This one comes from longtime listener, Doc Lifer, and amazing photographer, Richard Simcoe. I've been following some of Richard's work via his Twitter and Instagram accounts for about a year now, and, and we've emailed a bit as, as well. And, and judging by the work that I've seen so far, I do believe that Richard and I, we're, we're maybe kindred spirits. And after hearing the email that I'm about to read to you and, and seeing some of his work yourself, you might feel the same way. Richard writes, Hi Chris, I am writing you as a reaction to the latest episode of Documentary Life Podcast. You expressed interest in what your audience is up to and who we actually are, and who we actually are. I believe I already mentioned this one before, but in case I hadn't, I'm currently working as a lighting artist in VFX and animation industry. I am in the film industry, so to speak, however I am not working on documentaries. My interest in documentary genre comes partially from photojournalism and documentary photography, and partially it is as a result of influence from my dad. He used to watch lots of documentaries, and I did too. If I look at the whole thing from another angle, I feel I am a bit disappointed and disillusioned by where the feature film industry is going. 
I love what I am doing for work, but I am not excited about movies themselves. It feels like a money-making manufacture. There is no drive. There is no drive to produce an original movie with good story and good acting. It is all money-driven. Movies are released and usually forgotten before the DVD version comes out. Personally, I would love to be a part of something more meaningful than that. These are the reasons and influences that are shaping my interest in documentaries. I also want to touch upon something you mentioned in the podcast, and I believe it is it was from some of your listeners. It was about a guy who was good at photography, but he didn't want to make a make a living for fear of getting disconnected from his passion. I can somehow relate to that. Take my career for example. I really liked CG and VFX if it was done well, and I worked to support the story and and was not in the eye. That was the reason I got into the industry. Things have changed, however, and VFX seem to become the main selling point itself. Seems that story and acting and everything that makes the movie good and compelling was pushed back. At that point, you start to ask questions about your career choices. Even if you look at the documentaries as a genre, there are so many branches within that same tree to choose from. I absolutely love documentaries about nature, various cultures, disappearing tribes, etc. I might not be so excited in some other subgenres or stories. I think that's natural. So I'd rather do do it as a hobby and pick what I want to do rather than do do anything just for the sake of making a documentary. And this ties well into another thing I wanted to mention. For somebody like myself, uh, documentary filmmaking as as a hobby, it may be interesting to have discussion about mini or micro-budget documentaries, run-and-gun style shooting, one-man crew, etc. It's just a suggestion. Anyway, really appreciate the podcast. I really enjoy every episode. Richard. Well, Richard, thank you for taking the time, man, to share with me your thoughts on the podcast and your own interest in documentaries, and then some of your recommendations. I hope that you enjoyed today's initial segment, actually. That was absolutely a direct response to your request, so I do certainly hope that it was what you were looking for, and I think it's a great suggestion. I think a lot of people will benefit from that. You know, I feel the same way that you do about the state of feature films. I will rarely watch a feature narrative film these days. And, and while I obviously am watching more docs these days due to you know the podcast, my viewing habits have been trending to docs for probably a decade now anyhow. I used to be a massive feature film guy, and I thought that I wanted to direct narrative features. I, w- I was heavily into directors like Tarkovsky, Von Trier, Adam McGoyan, Kurosawa. I got way into the Dogma 95 movement. I-, I couldn't get enough of those damn Swedes and Danes you know, who were pushing the envelope and really making some great cinema at the time. Um, American cinema in the late 60s and early 70s is some of the best stuff out there. French New Wave with Godard and, and Truffaut. All of that stuff, all of that stuff absolutely fascinated me for years and years. And it shaped a lot of what I like in my cinema today. I just tend to look now for its incarnation in documentary. I don't know. I think I got burnt and I think I got really jaded with the film industry myself, Richard. Um, and not unlike yourself, the features and TV shows that I ever worked on, they actually really kind of made me not like movies and certainly not TV. Um, or how movies got made. And, and, and it made me really start to lose hope in cinema. As you had said, as you had alluded to, I believe that everything seemed completely driven by dollars and cents and in ways that, that aren't necessarily so obvious to the average moviegoer. But there's a reason there are so many remakes, so many franchises, so many reboots. <laughs> oh, if I have to hear that word again. 
There's no cause or need for Hollywood to take any risks anymore. They control the cinemas. They control what you see. They control the advertising to alert you of the movies that are available. Uh, the music that gets played in a film is most likely tied to the record company who is tied to the film company. Um, the actors that are attached to films are rarely the best people suited for a part, but studies have shown that just about anyone will now go see any film starring Ryan Gosling or, or Jennifer Lawrence, or, or that at least half of the population will go and see the next installment of, of, of the Fast and Furious franchise if you tell them that it's good to do so. I could go on and on, but but I will save you from my own sort of existential crises uh, about the film industry and film in general. <laughs> but documentaries always seem to offer up something different for me. There was something much more pure about the documentary filmmaking experience, I think. I really dug the idea of leaving my, my day job you know, behind me, for the most part commercial, by the way. I sometimes have more respect for, for the commercial industry than I do the feature film biz, because at least commercials are being upfront about their intent to sell something to you. But anyway, I, I like the idea of film, TV, commercial industry being the way that, that I paid the bills and the documentary work being something that I did for myself because it was something that I still could love and believe in. I think that you can relate to this, Richard, with your VFX work. It seems like you are making a very conscious decision to keep the documentary and the work that you do on features to keep them quite separate. And I think that I can understand this inclination to do so. I can't say it's entirely, you know, how I do it. I, I do sometimes work on others on other people's doc projects for pay. So documentary isn't entirely separate from my paid work. And I do intend to try and make money on my future documentary films. But for the most part, I still work the commercial and corporate video gigs as paid gigs while I do my docs. And like you, my tastes for cinema have clearly been affected by having worked in the industry. And I am almost exclusively drawn to documentary storytelling nowadays. Though, honestly, I, I'd still pay just about any, any amount of money to go see a Tarkovsky or Kurosawa retrospective up on the big screen. They were absolute masters of cinema, and their films were unquestionably meant for the big screen only. Now, what about the rest of you doc lifers? I'll bet a number of you could relate similar feelings to this subject. And we certainly all have our own reasons for doing documentary films. We all have the various roads that have brought us to documentary. In fact, I'd love to hear more of this kind of thing from you guys. So, so as Richard's done here, please share your journey to documentary with me. Or if you'd like to send me some feedback or offer a topic suggestion or a doc industry guest suggestion or have a question you might like me to answer, please email me at chris at barongfilms.com. I'd love to hear your comments, suggestions, or questions, or again, your journey to documentary filmmaking. I'd love to have that be a, be a part of the next Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. And speaking of legends of filmmaking, when we come back, I have the distinct pleasure of bringing to you a conversation that I recently had with Gordon Quinn, co-founder of Cartemquin Films and director, producer, and executive producer of over 50 documentary films, including the game-changing Oscar-nominated Hoop Dreams. It's a conversation with a true giant in American documentary, and I can't wait to share it with you. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. And this is The Documentary Life. Gordon Quinn, welcome to the program. It's exciting to have you here with us today on The Documentary Life. Glad to be here. 
It's funny. Your name was actually brought to my attention a couple of months ago from uh, from from a TDL listener, a fellow doc filmmaker, and actually a sound professional in the in the Chicago area where I believe you are currently based out of. And uh, his name is Corey Koken. And oh yeah. And right. Corey right. had emailed me. He had he'd responded to kind of a call that I had made um, on the air, if you will, basically asking listeners to reach out to me and you know open up that dialogue between listeners to tell me what it is that they need you know what 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 is what's the information that they crave you know i asked them to offer up topic uh conversation and other topic suggestions as well as if they had any guest suggestions as well and he wrote me a really uh, a thoughtful email that that if if, if i might I'd, I'd love to share it with you um and and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and read that and and cory cory had this to say you asked for people you should talk to, and my recommendation would be for Gordon Quinn. I, I have known him since I was a child and have worked with him on many of his films. He has created more docs than most of us have ever seen. On top of being an amazing filmmaker, he is quite the hero to me and, and super nice. When and if you reach out to him, make sure to drop my name if it helps. And... Uh, I, I then quickly looked you up. I, I have to say, um, I'm embarrassed to admit that, that I didn't know the name, the name recognition immediately. But of course, as soon as I looked up, looked up your name, you know, via Google, and and suddenly Cartemquin came up, and then and then all of the films that you've been associated with, um, I could immediately understand why Corey had reached out to me and said that you would be um, a great person to have on the program. And so, um, again, I, I, I thank you so much for, for joining me today. Sure. Well, you know, uh, I knew Corey's dad. Uh, right. That's why he met me as a little kid, because his dad, uh, you know, used to mix a lot of our films back yeah. in the day. And just recently, we kind of reconnected. I reconnected with Corey. Okay. And he mixed our 63 boycott film, uh, oh. which is about the great school boycott in 1963 where the African-American kids walked out of school because they were putting trailers behind the black schools Mm. so they wouldn't have to move those kids into the adjacent underutilized white schools. But Corey just mixed that film, which I shot over 50 years ago, back when I was a student at the University of Chicago. We just finished it and it's going to be uh, premiering at the... uh, Chicago Film Festival. Gordon, before we get further in into sort of before we get further into an examination of some some of some of the specific films, I do feel like it's important that that I read one more thing. And and this comes from and this is to give contextual sort of information to to my listeners. Um, and and this comes this comes from the Cartemquin site. And this was from I believe a press release when you were awarded a Career Achievement uh, Award from IDA, International Documentary oh, Association. Yeah. yeah, that was a great event. And, yeah. and if I could read this one paragraph, this kind of sums up a lot of sort of really what Corey, our fellow listener, was referring to earlier. And it says, Gordon Quinn has produced, directed, and or been cinematographer on over 55 films across five decades, garnering many awards, including three Emmys, two Peabody's, the IDA Award for Best Limited Series, the DGA Award for Directing, and an Oscar nomination and the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Hoop Dreams. His recent films as executive producer include The Interrupters, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, Life Itself, The Home Stretch, On Beauty, Almost There, 
Saving Messinoc, and we actually had Brett Eve Huffman on the show here earlier this year, by the way, in the game and the six-part series Hard Earned. A longtime activist for public and community media, Quinn was integral to the creation of ITVS, public access television in Chicago, and the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practice and fair use, and informing the Indie Caucus to support diverse independent voices on public television. Over 50 years at Cartemquin, Quinn has inspired and guided an immeasurable number of media makers whose films have left a lasting impact on millions of viewers. And, and, and that, is the, that is the impact of, of the work that you have done for years and years, Mr. Quinn. What I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about, uh, about Cartemquin, Cartemquin Films. Um, why don't you first give us an explanation, if you could, Gordon. Give us an explanation of what Cartemquin is and why you started Cartemquin in the first place. Well, we started in the beginning. You know, we were three guys in college. And we were very influenced by the early Verite films. Uh, I think a seminal moment for me is when I saw Ricky Leacock and Joyce Chopra's film, Happy Mother's Day, mm. uh, the work of the Maisels brothers, uh, yeah. Frederick Wiseman, and um, Jean Rouche also was very important for us, uh, Chronicle of the Summer. Okay. We were seeing these films that were, you know, recording reality as it unfolded before the camera and shaping stories more like a drama would be out of what happens between people and, you know, just observing behavior and that kind of thing. And so um, that, that kind of interest stimulated us to want to start and make films like that, you know, and, um, I went off and worked in the industry. I, when I went to the University of Chicago, they really didn't have filmmaking there. There was Doc Films, uh, the film club, and I joined that immediately. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, and actually they were into the auteur theory. You know, they were showing, uh, you know, Howard Hawks films and stuff like that, which I loved. But it wasn't what I wanted. You know, I wanted to do documentary. I already knew that. And so I went off and worked in the industry for a couple of years. Uh, I wound up in New York working on the film festival that uh, Murray Lerner uh, directed. And I was working with Howard Alk, who I learned to edit from. And I worked here in Chicago for Mike Shea, an old uh, ebony and life photographer who was getting into film. And I, I really learned camera work from him. And then I came back. We got this opportunity to make our first film home for life in an old age home. Right. And so that was that early period of Cartemquin where we were trying to, you know, make verite films that reflected society's problems and social issues back on society itself. But it was the 60s. And we very quickly, people started to come around to our little film company uh, and want to be associated with us and we were all becoming politicized around civil rights, around the war in Vietnam, and began to see that you had to do more than just reflect society back on itself. You had to really deal with power relationships between groups and between people. Hmm. Um, and so if you look at our films, as, we, as people came around, we kind of evolved into what we called the collective. And that was kind of that late 60s and, you know, through the 70s period of Cartemplin, 
where, you know, half the people in the group were union organizers and teachers and came from other fields. And the other half of the people were people who did have some kind of filmmaking background. And our films became uh, very political. They were they still had a verite base. Almost all of our films had a you know, we had characters and we were following people. But they would there would be a lot more analysis and in some cases driving narration, driving these early films, the Chicago Maternity Center story, Last Pullman Car, films like that. Um, you know, and, and the name really the three of us who founded the thing within the first couple of years, Carter and Temner, uh, you know, had left the organization for various reasons, usually because they needed to make a living, uh, <laughs> right. they weren't really making any money. But, um, you know, the name was the three of our names put together. We thought it sounded like Potemkin, you know, a really <laughs> battleship idea. Potemkin. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. The famous Russian film. And, you know, but we had it to do over again. I think we'd think of something a little less, uh, you know, we get mail addressed to Carden Queen and, it, you know, <laughs> it's been a, diff a difficult name over the years. That's great. Well, You've you've mentioned politicized and political a number of times, and obviously there's there's um, activism involved in, in certainly some of your earlier work at that time, even prior to filmmaking. Uh, what does it mean today? Um, what does it mean today to be a part of the Kartemquin, uh, part of the Kartemquin team and the catalog, really? Well, I think we always think. I mean, you know, I wrote my BA paper at the University of Chicago. Uh, on cinema verite and in democracy, and was heavily influenced by the thinking of John Dewey, the American philosopher. And I think right from the beginning, one of our core ideas was the documentary had a critical role to play in the democratic process. Uh, the kind of in-depth storytelling that it is, the ability to engage people on an emotional level and make them feel things, have them respond to characters that they might not, uh, you know, people that they might not come into contact with who are different from them or from different parts of the country or different economic classes that, and, and different races. But that had tremendous potential for playing a role within the democratic process. So we believe that at the beginning, and I think that's one of our core beliefs today. You know, everything's digital and we work in different ways and Recently, we've done a couple of series of very short films that were only released on the web, but all of it, in some way, we're looking at documentary filmmaking as making a contribution to the democratic process and to kind of people and forces within our society uh, coming together with powerful human stories that where you see the consequences of decisions that we make as a society and we make as a democracy, we see those consequences of those decisions playing out in people's lives. Well, I'd like to maybe even dig a little bit deeper. And I was, con to be honest, I was saving this towards the latter part of the interview, but it seems like you've really just given me an, a great segue there, Gordon. I, I know that as a young, perhaps, if I, if I may, ideological filmmaker, Certainly in the early days of Cartemquin, it seemed your intent on documentary film was as a vehicle for, for maybe some social change or real social change. And, sure. and, and so I, I would love to ask you, do you still deep down hold fast to this belief? 
I mean, can documentary film do more than even create awareness? Can it create true change? Well, again, I think those core beliefs are still there. How you actually do that can be very different. So, you know, in those early years, we evolved from our, our, our very early films, you know, Home for Life and Thumbs Down and those films, which really just told a story about what, something that was going on and reflected uh, what was going on in the world back into the society. And we thought that would be enough to make change. Right. As we started to understand more about power relationships, we'd start a film about a struggle to save a home delivery service for babies or the struggle to keep the last rail, uh, the last plant that produced rail cars in the U.S. open. And we would see in these struggles that the people were going to lose. And so we felt a responsibility to try to put a more analytical frame around that story of these people struggling so you could really understand what they were up against and the, and the history of the social forces that we, they were up against. But, you know, with a film like Hoop Dreams, which Steve James uh, directed and, did, and the producers were Steve James, uh, Fred Marks and Peter Gilbert, and they did this incredibly verite-driven human story about these young inner-city boys and their dreams of, of making it to the NBA. And that film reached a huge audience. Uh, a lot of people watched that film that would never watch a film about a social problem or, quote, <laughs> inner-city family, you know. They're not, not going to watch a film about, about people who are different than them, but they watched Hoop Dreams. And all the social issues are embedded in the story that we tell in these people's lives. So that film, in many ways, brought us back to our roots mm. of taking this more verite approach. But I think underneath it all, we've always believed that it's, no, film doesn't change the world. People change the world. But film can be a powerful tool in organizing people, engaging people, and in getting people to feel something because you've told them a story that moves them emotionally. And now, you know, they have to come to terms with those feelings. I, I sometimes tell the story about uh, we did a, one of the greatest things we ever did was a series, a seven hour television series for PBS called The New Americans. Right. And we did it at a point where there was a lot of debate, as there is today, about immigration. Immigration was becoming a, a hot issue. And we were felt like, well, all these people are arguing about this issue, but they don't actually know anything about the actual people who they're arguing about, the yeah. actual families, oh, how the often human is that story the case? Right, right. of the immigrants. So we told a series of stories and wove the stories uh, together in this uh, terrific seven-hour series called The New Americans. And this was in the days where, you know, the, the internet, the World Wide Web was just up there. And there were these early, I forgot what they call them, but they were interactive. You know, you could leave a message and then someone could comment on your message and, you know, kind of like Facebook, but before Facebook. You know, uh, like message boards type thing. Yeah, like a message board. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what, what it was like. And so we had one for the New Americans. And there was a certain kind of comment that kept coming up, you know, after the broadcast, after the national broadcast. And it was someone saying, you know, 
I, I see what you people are up to. You've got an agenda, you know. You want me to see that these immigrants are, you know, they care about their families and they have dreams for their futures and, you know, that they're kind of like me in some kind of way. And, you know, and <laughs> you sort of did make me feel that and I resent it. Oh. And my response was, great, I'll take that. That's the first step. <laughs> I made him, I made somebody, the, the series got somebody to shift their perspective a little bit, to, to, you know, have a moment of empathy that maybe they even felt resentful about, but had to come to terms with. And so I think that's the power of documentary film. But, but Gordon, uh, how does that, okay, help me understand how you as a filmmaker, how is, is, how, is that truly satisfying enough? Like, how is that satisfying enough when you know in your heart of hearts what you want is change, isn't it? Isn't that what we want, to create some kind it, of positive change? But to just say someone's someone's thoughts shifted a little or to, to the point that they resent you, isn't that just like, I, I don't know, <laughs> just angering yeah. someone to is get an emotion enough? from them? Well, it, but it's, it's you know, it it's, what I'm focusing on is I made them feel something. Yeah. And... No, it's not going to change them overnight. And a lot of films we do are films that are helping people in organizing context, films that people use to better understand a situation so they can come up with better organizing strategies. And when someone that we have been able to move them in that way, then maybe encounters a politician or an organizer or somebody who's doing voter registration going door to door for a candidate or something, they've just, they're a little bit more open to hear something else. So mm. I think it's all of these, it's not any one thing, but I think all of these things uh, play a role. Collect, kind of collectively? Yeah. When I get in the NBA, I'm a, uh, first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go see my mama, I'm gonna buy a house, and I'm gonna go down and make sure my sister and my brother's okay. Yeah, we can, Doc. <laughs> Try to get my dad Cadillac Oldsmobile so he can cruise in the game. Dominique. He dreams about it. He look at those basketball commercials where they be advertising like these Nike shoes, and he'll tell, he'll tell his little small brother, Joe, Joe, that's me. The film Hoop Dreams in 1994, it, it, it's a film that seemed to shift. It really shifted some things for documentary. Um, uh, for one, it became the highest grossing doc at that time. Um, for myself personally, uh, Gordon, it was the first doc I, I had ever seen in a theater setting. And, and, and that radically, it radically changed my views on what, what documentary film is even was and and what that type of storytelling could be um i loved the intimacy with the subjects uh i loved you know the cinema verite aspect and to be honest it gave me hope and inspiration um as a young filmmaker myself and you could even argue in some ways that kind of filmmaking um, may have been even a little bit of a precursor for for uh, you'll you'll forgive me for reality TV. Um, it certainly I think opened the doors for people in on an audience level um, in terms of acceptance of documentary films. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, it was an incredibly important film that really helped to make people understand uh, what documentaries could be and the kind of audiences that they could reach. Uh, all of that is important. I hope it's not responsible for reality TV, which I think uh, is really, you know, a very different kind of thing because reality TV is often contrived situations. Oh, you bet. Uh, and even when they're in the real world, you know, uh, they, you know, a, a show like Cops or something, they're kind of done to a formula. And what was so important about Hoop Dreams, and I think it's true of many documentaries today, is that we didn't know where the story was going to go when we started it. We were just following it wherever it went. Mm. And during the four and a half years that we were following the, the young men, it was extremely difficult to raise money for it. Nobody seemed to quite understand what we were doing until finally, uh, finally we got involved with KTCA in Minneapolis and then at the near the end, the MacArthur Foundation uh, came in and really uh, gave us the money to finish the film and and do spend a couple of years editing it, which which we did. You were an executive producer on this film, correct? Correct. As an executive producer on a documentary film, of course, a lot of my background happens to be in commercial and feature film work, uh-huh. and 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 the documentary uh, is really been the passion work, and that's what I'm, I'm I'm doing more and more of these days, right? The documentary is always that's the passion work, but that's always the goal. It's the commercial that allows me to it really allows sure. me to 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 do this work, and the executive producer plays a very particular role in in say feature films. Help my audience understand, in particular, maybe in your instance on this film and Hoop Dreams, what are you doing well, as the executive producer on a documentary it, it, like at, this? At, yeah, at Cartanquin, you know, early on, you know, really Hoop Dreams was the first uh, time that I'd ever been an executive producer. Um, the, the idea at Cartanquin is, is that I'm getting involved with the film creatively to really help the filmmakers make the film that is their vision. Um, And I'm going to help with all aspects, including uh, raising the money. In a feature film, an executive producer usually means in some kind of way that you you played a critical role in putting the financing together. Right. But in our context, it means that I'm spending a lot of time with people in the editing room. Uh, There's even a couple tiny, I, I did very little shooting on Hoop Dreams, but I, I even did a, a shot a couple little scenes on the film. I'm consulting with the filmmakers about their relationship to their subjects and, and about problems that come up in mm. the course of the filmmaking and that kind of thing. So it's a pretty hands-on kind of role. Right. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Peter Gilbert actually told me, sort of after the film came out, he said, you know, well, you really shouldn't be an executive producer. That just means you're connected to the money or something. <laughs> and I didn't know, you know, what title I should have. I think I have a title on there now that says uh, creative consultant, or I can't remember what it says, but, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, a title that shows sort of more accurately my involvement in the film. But in the films that we do now where I'm an executive producer, it's that same kind of thing. I'm working with the filmmakers, uh, trying to make decisions about their, you know, how they're going to relate to their subjects, dealing with ethical problems that come up in the in the course of shooting, looking at the footage as they go along and giving them feedback, 
And then really the big part of it is getting involved with them in the in the editing world. Right, right. Okay. In many ways, Gordon, you're 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 sort of this dream mentor figure that a lot of I, I imagine a lot of young documentary filmmakers are looking for. And so when when a Steve Steve James comes to you with a project like Hoop Dreams, um, or in the instance of Brent E. Huffman, who we've had here on the program, and his film was Saving Masainaka. I believe you were executive producer on that. Right. How do these guys approach you? Are they approaching you personally? Are they um, approaching you because of Kartemquin? Or are they approaching you because of Gordon Quinn? How, do, how does that well, work? And how would somebody in the future um, approach you with their project? It, yeah, it's it's changed over time. I mean, when when the guys with Hoop Dreams, they were right out of film school. And they had an idea for a film. And they had encountered my producing partner, uh, Jerry Blumenthal. At the, they were in southern Illinois down in Carbondale. And so at the Big Muddy Film Festival, they had encountered him. And they came to Cartemquin, you know, to talk to us about this idea, which struck me as a really good idea. And we took the pro- project on. And that was probably the beginning of what is our, you know, the collective by that time had fallen apart. But... We now have re-evolved and we keep reconfiguring ourselves over the years. And now we're a true media arts organization that works with younger filmmakers that has programs. We have our Diverse Voices and Docs programs for people of color. We have a very elaborate intern program. And so it's a combination of, you know, production and working with people on their films a little bit with like the model of Hoop Dreams uh, but also this programmatic stuff that we do. And we have a board, you know, we've become a, a true media arts organization. Okay, then Gordon, I'm a filmmaker who has a film that I believe is part of, uh, uh, that w- that I believe would be appropriate with, as part of the Cartemquin team. How do I approach you guys with my film if this is the case? And how do you guys well, accept that, submissions? Right, right, right. What now, it's a process. Uh, we right. call it a courtship Uh for, for a lack of a, 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 a better analogy. It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> and, you know, we want to make sure that it's the right fit, that these people actually really want to work with us and don't necessarily just want our name or think that we'll be helpful in raising money. Of course. Um, and so, you know, a good example is the film The Home Stretch about homeless high school youth here in Chicago mm. that was done by two women out of New York. And so we're like, well, I don't know. You know, we had a, over about a six or seven month period. We had a whole bunch of meetings with them, you know, to make sure that they really did want to work with us and that wow. they really did want to work with us in that on the creative level. Um, and it was a terrific project. Uh, they actually uh, had Leslie Simmer, the one editor that we have on staff here, became their editor. Oh, great. Uh, and it was a real collaboration in terms of creatively making that film. And so that's what we're looking for. What, what we have right now is we've kind of formalized the process. And so we have what we call the pipeline committee. Uh, and there's a group of us, you know, a filmmaker will have a preliminary conversation with me or, or, or usually with Tim Horsberg. And then we will bring it up to that committee and see if we want to, you know, enter into more uh, deeper conversations with those filmmakers about how we might work together. Uh, And if there's the potential to raise the money for it, because sometimes we've had sometimes films that we've been involved in. We really want to help the filmmaker and see them get it 
finish, but we they are never able to raise enough money for mm. it to actually become a full-on Cartemquin co-production. Mm. But we stay involved to help them get it done and help them get it released and you know stay involved creatively, but just not at the same level that we do in a full-blown co-production. This is favorite Kate. He's a great kid. And some kids don't live at this age, you know? That's another thing to be proud about. That, you know, this is 18th birthday, he lived, and to get to see 18, that's good. I want to tell you that I love you very much. I'm very proud of you. It seemed like and I was 18 just yesterday. Here, happy birthday. I love you. Hey, Aww. hey. We don't have that much time left, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practice in fair use, use. which you were a a critical part of. When did this happen, Gordon, and how and why did this all come to be? I think it was at the end of the 90s when I was approached by an old friend of mine, Pat After Heidi, who was now running the Center for the Center for Social Media and uh, Center for Amer- Media and Social Impact. Yeah. Okay. At American University. Yes. Uh, it's now uh, run by Katie Chateau Boran, who is on our. She's actually on our board, uh, and Pat was on our first board. Uh, so we have a long uh, history with the center. But <clears throat> Pat had been looking at our field with, along with Peter Yazzi, a uh, leading intellectual property lawyer, you know, with a worldwide reputation. Okay. And they had seen this problem, which is that in the U.S., we have a pretty good fair use clause in the copyright law. You know, it says that you can use somebody else's copyrighted work in your work without licensing it from them. If you're parroting it, critiquing it to uh, further an argument uh, to put something in historical context, or maybe if you've captured something inadvertently. But we lost the right to use this. You know, with Hoop Dreams, there's a scene in Hoop Dreams where the family sings Arthur Happy Birthday. Yeah. And we had to license that for $5,000. <laughs> I just forgot absurd. about that. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the standard in the industry and what people were being taught in film school and what any lawyer you talk to would tell you uh, and the broadcasters and, you know, the, the theatrical distributors, everyone had the same line. If you're a professional, if this is a real documentary, everything in it has to be clear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this was a tremendous burden on the documentary community. Yeah. And some films weren't getting made, other films weren't being able to talk about things in the way they wanted to talk about it because they couldn't afford the images. Right. And what Pat and Peter did was they did some big studies and they looked at our field and they saw the you know negative impact that this was happening. And they said, you know, what, what Pat said to me was that you guys have got this terrible problem. And I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, (laughs) Yes, we do. And she said, well, we have a solution. 
And you don't need to get a new law. The law is fine. You don't need to go to Congress and you don't need to go to the courts. The actual few court cases that exist in this area support a fairly fairly robust fair use. Mm -hmm. And the thing about fair use is it's a balance of rights. It's a balance of rights between the maker and the need of everyone to be able to participate in the culture of their computer the discourse right the needs of a democratic society to be open and to be able to you know use culture in that way and build on culture and so we had meetings all across the country uh we hosted two of them here at chicago where they would come in and talk to filmmakers and we would hammer out, you know, because we're rights holders, too. We're on both sides of this issue. And we would hammer out kind of what we saw based within the parameters of what the law actually said, how we saw fair use. And we published the statement, the filmmaker statement of best practice. Mm. And then we spent the next five years trying to re-educate everyone. I never talked to so many lawyers. You know, oh, wow. I, <laughs> we went to conferences. We went to law firms and did their CLE luncheons, you know, their internal education things. We were at film schools. We were re-educating everybody as to what the law actually said. And now we had this from our field as a whole. We stood up as a community and said, this is best practice on fair use, you know. And all this misconception that was out there, like, you know, you'd look in the standards and practices book at this period, like NBC, and it would say, uh, you can use 30 seconds, but no more. Well, that's not what the law says. Yeah, right, right. The law says you can use as much as you need to make your point no more. 10 seconds might be too much. Two mm. minutes might not be enough. Mm. It all depends on the context. And so we published this thing, and we did all this re-education. And little by little, we just won an enormous victory. We changed the reality for what filmmakers could do and what would be accepted. PBS was the first to start broadcasting uh, our fair use claims yep. without being cleared, even though we didn't have e insurance on it. But eventually other broadcasters picked it up. We were getting into theaters with it. And the big breakthrough was when finally the insurance company said, yes, we will insure <laughs> your fair use claims with e insurance. Before we go, I-, I would like to hear what's next for you and what's next for Cartempwin. Well, I'll be working a lot with my uh, new film that I did with Rachel Dixon and Tracy Matthews called 63 Boycott. Uh, It's about this great uh, civil rights demonstration in 1963 where 250,000 kids, uh, mostly African-American, walked out of the schools to protest their putting trailers behind the black schools so that they wouldn't have to move those kids into the underutilized adjacent white schools. And it's going to premiere at the Chicago Film Festival on October 22nd, which is the actual anniversary of the boycott. Uh, And then it'll be at other festivals. There's another film, uh, Keep Talking, uh, Karen Weinberg's film, which uh, is getting its international premiere, I think, at the Vancouver Film Festival and is going to be at various film festivals that's a It's a film about uh, indigenous Alaska people trying to preserve their language in a situation where there's only about 50 native speakers left. Right. I was reading about that actually recently. Yeah. Yeah, A a really good film. So we have have quite a few Unbroken Glass sort of Haddish Festival run, uh, and it's theatrical, you know, a mini theatrical run. 
which is a film about mental illness in an immigrant family. You know, we've we've got a lot of new new projects, some in the works, and and many of it, we're you, you go through these ups and downs. You know, we've had a period where a lot of things are getting finished within the within the last year. Mm. And then you'll go through a period where, you know, you're just working on stuff and fewer films right. are being released. Gordon yeah. Quinn, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot thank you enough for the incredible 50 years plus of documentary film work that you have done. What uh, what what Cartemquin Films has done for doc filmmakers uh, for for the fair use documentation for for having this conversation with us. Um, I, I'll, I will thank Corey Koken again for, for, for putting us together or introducing us. And uh, if you would be interested, I would love to have you on the show again sometime. There is so much more that we could cover. And you, you are a wealth of valuable insight and information for any documentary filmmaker. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you, Gordon. Well, thanks. Uh, glad to do it. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.